stories of economic growth, job creation, and business success from across the 11-county community of Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, here's Matt Gabry. The value of energy assets, specifically fossil fuels, is often misunderstood and at times can be controversial depending on just how we define the parameters of the conversation. And that controversy associated with fossil fuels can be driven by misinformation or disagreement on the risks and the benefits of accessing, distributing, and maximizing the power that is and can be derived from various types of fossil fuels like petroleum and coal and gas. Compare that value with renewable energy sources like wind and solar, and the conversation can become much more, well, passionate. We strongly believe that no country should have to sacrifice economic prosperity or energy security in pursuit of environmental sustainability. We believe we can achieve all these goals and that they are complementary. That's a clip from the 24th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It took place in December of 2018, and the person speaking is Wells Griffith from the Department of Energy. He's outlining the benefits of fossil fuels, access and reliability, affordability, and more. Clearly, the keep it in the ground protesters we hear in that clip, well, they disagree with the use of fossil fuels, regardless of the innovative benefits provided by fossil fuels across our global societies. With an emphasis on enhanced communication about the benefits of fossil fuels, the Center for Industrial Progress is at the forefront of advocating for embracing, not resisting, the potential that communities around the world can achieve through harnessing the power of fossil fuels. Don Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress, he joined us right here on Growing Greater to share insights on industrial progress that's driven in part by fossil fuels. Here, Don explains how this think tank got its start. Well, the Center for Industrial Progress was started by a friend and mentor of mine, Alex Epstein, who wrote the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And basically what happened was in 2011, he thought that we needed an environmental philosophy that would be an alternative to the green movement. Okay. The green movement basically stands for this idea that we should minimize our impact on nature, and people are taught that that's what you need to support if you're anti-pollution. But what it really amounts to is being anti-development, and what Alex wanted to start was a center that would be pro-development, pro-industrial progress, but also anti-pollution. And so what we really tried to do is propagate this new pro-human ideal in opposition to this anti-development ideal that unfortunately has become basically the mainstream default position, including of people who wouldn't think of themselves as anti-development. That actually makes really good sense. It's part of this, what you guys describe as like the new industrial revolution, but doing it in a way that's really responsible and really thoughtful. Well, you have to think about what is our ultimate goal. And 
from our perspective, our ultimate goal, the thing that we should be judging everything by is, does it contribute to human flourishing? Mm -hmm. Does it make people better long range and in every aspect of life? And certainly environmental quality is one aspect of what's important in human life. But what we've been taught and what is very widespread is this idea that our goal is not human flourishing, our goal is to minimize human impact on nature. That the ideal that we should be striving for is a planet that looks like what would be in existence if human beings had never existed. Hmm. And we think that's a really anti-human ideal because in order to survive and flourish, we have to impact nature a lot. When we had minimal impact on nature is when we were living till 30. And so what you want to do is you want to have as much impact as possible that improves human life, and then you want to minimize your negative impacts. And that's what we're championing. That makes sense as well. And I want to dive into some of the aspects, especially as it relates to the use of energy, whether it's fossil fuels or other kinds of energy sources, whether they're renewables or not. But before we get there and before we kind of wrap our head around some of the things you were just sharing with us, I'd love to dive in and learn a little bit more about Don Watkins and your journey to how you found yourself in this role and, frankly, how you found yourself living in greater Philadelphia because, by chance, you just happen to live in greater Philadelphia, even though CIP, Center for Industrial Progress, is actually headquartered in California, correct? That's right. Yeah. So share with us a little bit about Don Watkins. Where'd you grow up and, uh, you know, kind of what was your vision of what you wanted to be when you were navigating your way through high school and beyond? Certainly, I never saw myself having anything to do with energy. I grew up in Fairfax County, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. It's not exactly a hotbed of fossil fuels or, you know, even energy is not a big topic, certainly not outside of the policy world. I didn't know anybody in the industry. My real passion from the time that I was 14, in part, even before that was philosophy, that I was always interested in philosophy, which teaches us how to think clearly about issues, and that in particular, how to think clearly about good and evil, how to think clearly about the choices that we make, about the actions that we take. And I became really fascinated by that issue, and one of the people I met as I went on to make that career was Alex, and we were both interested in philosophy, and that was part of what drew him and then ultimately me to energy. Mm. Because there's two really important things about energy. One is that it's the industry that powers every other industry, yep. and that means that choices that we make about energy, if we make the right choices, everything can get better, and if we make the wrong choices, everything can get worse. And so if you're interested in philosophy because you think it's a powerful tool for making good choices that will better human life, then energy is a vital topic to think clearly about. Then the second thing that got us fascinated was, and this is one of the things he pointed out to me as he's becoming more interested in energy, was that the whole way we talk about energy has nothing to do with thinking clearly. Hmm. Let me give you two examples. Yeah, please. So one is that it's incredibly biased. Like if you get into conversations about energy or you read the news, you almost never hear anything good about fossil fuels. You only hear negatives. And you almost never right. hear anything bad about solar and wind. You only hear positives. Right. And set aside what you think of those forms of energy, certainly being biased is not going to lead us to the right decision. And then the second thing is that it's incredibly sloppy the way that we talk about energy issues. So one of the kind of you know key phrases that we hear all the time is like, do you believe in climate change or right. climate change is real? But that's yeah. incredibly vague and sloppy because it doesn't distinguish between are we changing the climate in ways that are mild and manageable? Or are we changing them in ways that are runaway and catastrophic? Mm -hmm. And if you just say, do you believe in climate change? 
then you need to be able to be really clear about the magnitude of the impact. Because if you're concerned with human flourishing, what matters is not, are we changing climate? What matters is, do we have a safe climate for human beings to live in? And part of that is the magnitude of our impact on the warming. And part of that is our magnitude of our ability to cope with it, including through energy. And so if you our interest in philosophy led us to see that like this is an area where you really need to bring clear standards of thinking. And so certainly what I think about my role is primarily about giving people a better framework to think clearly about their energy choices, including a framework that helps them assess the conflicting claims of different experts, because we all have to rely on experts about energy choices, about climate, about environmental and health issues. How do we go through those different claims and think about them rigorously and then hold the experts that we're dealing with to high standards so that we can make informed choices as citizens who might not be experts in any of these, let alone all of those fields? I like how you reference sloppy, because I think that is a good descriptor for the average layperson's observation of the energy space, and to your point, you know, perspectives on climate change. I often use the word uneducated or just uninformed, and people are giving opinions with very little information to really share anything meaningful beyond a very surfacey kind of type of conversation. Hence, I think you're a very appropriate description of the word sloppy. What is the if there is such a thing, that area that really challenges you and your team at Center for Industrial Progress when you are focused on educating folks and they just don't seem to appreciate where you're coming from. I guess a different way to say this is, you know, what keeps you up at night? If if you could just help people understand this one or two or these three assets or perspectives, it would really change the dynamic of the conversation. Is there such a thing? I think there is. And I've talked about how we have this framework that is that once you state it openly, nobody's going to say, yeah, I want to be biased or sloppy. And most people, not all, but most people will say, yeah, I'm for human flourishing. Right. But we never make it explicit. We never make it top of mind. And so the real issue is if you give people an explicit empowering framework, that I think is the foundational thing that enables you to transform the conversation and make it much healthier. In other words, you can think about a good framework as common sense, but it's not common practice. And so what keeps us up at night is how do we make it common practice? Mm-hmm. And then we can debate the facts, but we're debating the facts from agreed upon framework. And so it makes it much easier to arrive at common conclusions and conclusions that I think are actually justifiable and defensible. So, folks, that's Don Watkins. He's an author, and he's the director of education at the Center for Industrial Progress. When I say he's an author, he's co-authored a book called Equal is Unfair, America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality. And he also served as an editor of a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels that was written by his friend and colleague at uh, the Center for Industrial Progress, Alex Epstein. So, Don, I do want to shift to this focus on how we help people appreciate your perspective and your team's perspective on progress, obviously, but a much more nuanced approach around this moral dilemma, if you will. How do you speak to the fact that fossil fuels, if we don't use them, it's actually immoral. If we do use them, there's a moral case to be made. Well, you have to start again with being clear in the goal. And if the goal is human flourishing, 
then the foundational thing that you need is cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. Because what energy does is it fuels the machines that do our work for us. It's the machine labor and our capacity to power those machines that was responsible for the Industrial Revolution and more broadly responsible for the fact that instead of living to 30, we live until 80. And so the more affordable, abundant energy that we have, the better we can live and the more we can flourish. And the less we have, one of the interesting things is you can basically put a map, a chart up of GDP for a country and a chart of fossil fuel use or of energy use at least, and even CO2 emissions, and they basically match. And what it represents is the fact that it is through energy that we improve our lives materially. And then ultimately it helps us in every endeavor in human life. And so then it's very important to say, well, how do we get cheap, plentiful, and reliable energy? Because that's not given to us by nature. It wasn't handed to us. And in fact, for most of human life, we had very little energy. At most, what we had was animal power. And animal power is very limited and very inefficient from the perspective of being able to transform nature on the scale that we have to in order to really live great lives. And the first and in many ways, the only proven sources of energy that can provide cheap, plentiful, reliable energy on a scale of billions have been coal, oil, and natural gas. And, mm-hmm. and when we're talking about portable power, oil is particularly superior and that there's nothing that comes close to it. Whereas, you know, in the realm of electricity, say, nuclear and hydro are also very amazing sources of energy as well. Although, I mean, hydro is limited by scalability factors and nuclear has been basically criminalized. And Mm -hmm. so we're very reliant for everything that we have around us on fossil fuels. And so when you have something that's that superior to alternatives, to the fact that it provides more than 80% of the energy that we use to power our lives, then there's a very high threshold involved for saying that we're going to restrict it given the importance of energy to our lives. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay careful attention to the concerns that people have about our energy alternatives. It means we need to look at those closely and then figure out what's the best decision. But instead, what we're taught is that, oh, you know, we can just ban these, we can ban 80% or more of fossil fuel use, and we'll just use solar and wind for everything. Right. And yet, the fact is that the world only gets a few percent, I think it's like 3% of our total energy use from solar and wind. And well, why is that, given that almost every government has been pumping money and moral support behind these energy sources for decades, longer than I've been alive? And it comes down to they face a basic challenge that's a real challenge that you have to contend with, which is that they're intermittent, unreliable, erratic sources of power, and we need power to be reliable. And so whenever you use these sources, you have the infrastructure of the solar and wind itself, but then you have the infrastructure of the life support that has to back it up 100% so that when it's not around, we still have power. And then you have to use those power sources, which are almost always fossil fuels and sometimes nuclear. You have to use those inefficiently because you're pumping them up and down rather than allowing them to be used in the most efficient way. And so as a result, it's incredibly expensive. And the two countries that use the most solar and wind are Denmark and Germany. Mm -hmm. And if I was going to give you a pop quiz on who has the two highest electricity rates in the developed world, what would you guess? I'm going to go Denmark and Germany now. All right. You came through. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, and so we have to take that really seriously if we care about people having the energy that they need to flourish. Right. And the other interesting part of this that I don't think the average person appreciates or thinks about the way you and your team do at CPI, 
is it takes fossil fuels to help create and distribute the renewables, the wind, the solar power. Is that a fair perspective? Yeah, I mean, you can't build a windmill with a windmill. And so, I mean, what they are from beginning to end are parasitical forms of energy. Now, I'm not inherently opposed to them. If people can make them work, then that's great. Like the more energy, the better. And so I am not for banning solar and wind and forcing everybody to use fossil fuels, unlike the proponents of solar and wind who are often for banning fossil fuels and saying you have to use solar and wind. What I want is for every form of energy to be able to compete on a free market and then for us to all be able to choose the best form of energy on a free market. But the only reason that I think it's so important to stress the real inferiority of solar and wind at this point in history is because I think policies that force us to rely on them are policies that have the potential to hurt millions and even billions of people. And as somebody concerned with human flourishing, including you know my own flourishing and my kids flourishing, that's something that terrifies me. It's a tool. Fossil fuels are a tool that we as a society can harness to, to your point, flourish to create progress. Absolutely. And in many ways that people don't think about. So when they think about how we use fossil fuels, they'll think, all right, well, I drive my car, I fly in an airplane, or, you know, it keeps the lights on. And all of that is important. And, you know, we shouldn't undervalue it, say, by having a Green New Deal that says we're going to, you know, try to get rid of air travel. Nevertheless, there are underappreciated benefits of fossil fuels. And just to name two that I think nobody takes seriously. So one is they're environmental improvers. So nature doesn't give us the environment that we need to flourish. Like nature naturally doesn't give us clean water, certainly not in the abundancy that we need. We have to be able to clean it or move it from places where it is to places where we need it. It doesn't give us even healthy air. If you think about airborne diseases, which are the biggest threat to human beings versus something like fire, which, you know, that smoke can kill you over decades and airborne disease can kill you tomorrow. Fossil fuels and energy more broadly have been vital to cleaning that up. So we have this environmental improvement capacity that also has to be taken into account and not just treat fossil fuels as taking this perfect environment and messing it up because we never had a perfect environment. So we need fossil fuels to clean our environment, to clean our water, to clean our air, and to live a healthier life. And that's something that most people take for granted. Right. And one thing that you see is that in countries that go from being energy poor into being energy rich is... You would think, like, take something like China, which has real problems with smog, because I don't think they used technology and had the right policies to protect against pollution Mm -hmm. as they should have. But nevertheless, going from energy poor to energy rich, they've seen their life expectancies rise substantially, which if all fossil fuels did was make our environment worse, we would think, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And it's the same across the board. Wherever people gain more energy, including from fossil fuels, including even, you know, substandard use of them, as in places like China, you see an improvement in health and human well-being. And so that's one. But the other then is I mentioned that if we're concerned with climate, what we're really concerned with is not not changing climate. What Mm -hmm. we're concerned is with a livable climate. Well, one of the things fossil fuels do is enable us to make our climate passively more livable. So think about the difference between being caught out in a storm versus living in a high energy society where we have resilient buildings, we have heating and air conditioning to protect us from the elements, we can build flood resistant walls, we can do all sorts of things, we can create early warning systems that allow us to identify potential climate threats and get out of the way. 
As the result of all of this, we've seen that climate-related deaths have actually decreased by 98% over the last century, Hmm. and it's decreases in the places where people have the most wealth and energy. And so if you're concerned with climate safety, then the number one thing that you want is not to like lower temperatures by one degree over a, a century. You want to make sure that we have even more wealth and energy and definitely the places that don't have it today and therefore are very vulnerable to climate, that they have more energy and wealth. And that is really what I think a a pro-human concern with energy abundance and human flourishing leads to. I really like how you position a society that has access to energy-rich assets actually improves their quality of life, improves their longevity, improves lots of different measurable things in their society. And this actually dates back, and you guys point this out in the book, A Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, this dates back centuries, that you can see societies that have embraced certain kinds of use of fossil fuel, they're able to produce so much more. And it's similar to what you're referencing in your Center for Industrial Progress. It's all about the new industrial revolution. And How do we actually take this in a way that creates policy and a new approach and better communications that are allowing for progress that is engaging with fossil fuels? And to your point a moment ago, renewables as well, but unless renewables can actually replace fossil fuels, there's no sense in really moving forward holistically with just renewables. I mean, one way I think about it is like, there used to be this real enthusiasm for progress. I mean, like if you read, I think David McCall has a book on the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this was like a Super Bowl level times 10 event. Right. Where like we've created something, we've built something new that's going to make life better. Human beings can engage in more activity. We can build more, we can create more. And there was a real celebration of that. And we've gotten to the point now where it takes 30 years to build anything And it's just opposed by everybody left and right. And it's looked at suspiciously and negatively. And I think getting back to this idea of human mastery over the environment, human mastery over the planet in the sense that we are expanding our capacity to achieve things. And like, so we were touched at a minor level by the polar vortex that came through, but Mm -hmm. certainly our friends in the Midwest got Got hammered by it. And one of the things that you saw was that a lot of people would have died if it hadn't been for fossil fuels, in particular coal. Mm -hmm. And so you think it still remains a life or death issue that we have this need for energy and we have the need to build these projects that are transformative and that are very hard to build today. I mean, the fact is that uh, if we look at how much natural gas has been produced in Pennsylvania, I mean, it's more than Canada. Right. And then if we look at our neighbors, New York, which share part of the shale formations that have all this gas, they've banned hydraulic fracturing right. and shale energy technology. Right. And they've also blocked and stopped any building of new pipelines. And so they're becoming more dependent on something that they aren't going to have access to. So our failure to appreciate industrial progress and then have policies that allow us to engage in that process, in that progress in ways that protect us from negatives, but don't prevent us from doing positives. We're making ourselves more and more vulnerable to climate, making ourselves more vulnerable to, I mean, ultimately, we're making it harder for us to achieve everything positive that we've talked about so far that energy makes possible. And that's why it's so important to get these decisions right. 
We were told our fossil fuel usage would bring ecological disaster on a cataclysmic scale. Earth was supposed to be uninhabitable by now. Yet, life is better than ever. People around the world have climbed out of unspeakable poverty. By any measure, our environment is better than it's ever been. This, all powered by coal, oil, and natural gas. But how? How could the experts have been so wrong? Not only wrong, but hysterical and reactionary and rude, stifling progress in the process. In this video, Don's friend and colleague, Alex Epstein, outlines the importance of continuing to use fossil fuels. As the video notes, Alex's book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, makes the case that in order for society to prosper, we actually need fossil fuels. This notion is at the core of the Center for Industrial Progress. The CIP believes that human beings have the untapped potential to radically improve our lives by using technology to improve the planet across a multitude of industries like mining and manufacturing, agriculture, chemistry, and energy. Every individual has the potential for a longer, happier, healthier, safer, more comfortable, more meaningful, and more opportunity-filled life. This is the foundational approach presented by Alex in his book and through the Center for Industrial Progress, as well as in his passionate presentations about the benefits of fossil fuels. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Don Watkins of the Center for Industrial Progress in just a moment. And first, my team and I at Select Greater Philadelphia, we hope you can join us and members of the Greater Philadelphia Energy Action Team on Wednesday, May 29th from 8 to 10 a.m. for a special program called Energy Pathways. You'll meet many of the guests featured on our recent energy-focused podcast series, and you'll learn more about how both fossil fuels and environmentally sustainable technologies are leading the way in the future of energy production. For more details and to register for Energy Pathways, presented by our Chamber and the Energy Action Team, visit chamberphl.com slash events. That's chamberphl.com slash events. Now let's get back to our conversation with Don. Don, I'd love for you to react to this because as we're diving into kind of a special series on the energy assets in the greater Philadelphia region that really distinguish us, part of our role at Select Greater Philadelphia and our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia is to attract new businesses here, to create new jobs, attract talent and capital to Northern Delaware and Southern New Jersey and Southeastern Pennsylvania. And one of the things that frustrates me at times is that the average person kind of takes for granted the resource that we have here in terms of our access to natural gas and to other kinds of fossil fuels and don't necessarily appreciate these nuances that the microphone that you and I are speaking into, the counter we're sitting at, the devices that we use to listen to these kinds of programs on our radios and tablets and smartphones and other kinds of devices, the cars we're driving, pretty much everything that's around us, the floor, the ceiling, are made from petroleum-based products in some way or another. 
And the whole notion of how they take this for granted, and to your point a moment ago, it's not just about fueling homes to stay warm and fueling businesses to manufacture new products or distribute items and make food and things like that. It's really about everything that we take for granted in our society that are created by fossil fuels. I'd love to hear your perspective on that kind of thinking that this lack of education and awareness of the average citizen, and especially those who are you know, not supportive of the fossil fuel industry, is one that really challenges me, especially when I'm thinking about business growth. So one thing is there is this tendency to focus on the fact that like fossil fuels have negatives. Right. And it's true, they have negatives. But the fact Every, that everything has negatives, everything right? has negatives. And the question is, do the positives outweigh the negatives or rather more precisely, does the cost benefit of this alternative outweigh the cost benefit of every other alternative? Right. An analogy that Alex likes to give that I find really powerful is, you know, the whole thing with vaccines. Like if you say like, yeah, I'm for using vaccines and somebody calls you a vaccine side effect denier, mm-hmm. like No, I acknowledge that there's side effects, but I think the benefits far outweigh the costs. Totally. And I think that perspective then allows you to look and appreciate that it's not that fossil fuels are perfect. It's that they're so superior to everything else for most uses that they've been transformative in our lives to an extent that we don't appreciate. Let me just give one example of an area that I find striking and that, you know, you never hear about. So, like, I I saw a statistic that the average hospital, about half of its costs are bound up in electricity costs. Mm -hmm. Like, that's half the cost of a hospital. And then you think, like, it makes a big difference for our health, what electricity costs. And if I live in a, a state that has very high electricity costs because we're not free to use the best forms of electricity, like, that's going to harm me and the people I care about. And if you even go more deeply, like what even allows us to have medicine before you had industrial level energy that could power civilization, basically 90% of the people had to work on farms. Mm -hmm. It's energy and access to energy that liberated us to pursue things like knowledge about medicine so that you had people who could devote full time to things that weren't just growing corn. And so energy touches everything and fossil fuels are in particular get most of the credit for that because they've supplied, unless they're barred, will continue to supply the vast majority of the energy that we use for decades to come. And it's not for any nefarious reason, it's for a very positive reason, which is you have this form of energy that's been naturally stored and concentrated by nature. And then you've had an industry that's found a super efficient process for harnessing it. And instead we're taught, let's take a dilute form of energy in an industry that's found an incredibly inefficient way to turn it into energy. And let's just use that. And that means that whether it's your healthcare or whether it's your ability to cope with climate, whether it's your ability to heat your home, certainly if you're poor, I mean, even your electricity and heating going up a few percent can be a big deal. Like appreciating the superiority of fossil fuels and appreciating the value of energy, I think is tremendously important. And yet I think one reason why we don't do it is that we've been taught that that's not what's important. What's important is not the value of energy to contribute to human flourishing. What's really important is about human beings minimizing our impact on nature. It's that point that I talked about before that I think it just bleeds through because it puts our focus on the wrong thing. And whereas if you're explicitly have in mind this idea that, yeah, I want the best life for human beings, 
then it becomes very apparent that energy is vital to our lives and to our businesses. Right. And it's not that fossil fuels are bad, and it's not that renewables are bad. It's that they can coexist in in harmony, but to your point, recognizing that fossil fuels are superior. Yeah. And when they can exist in harmony, there's a way in which I agree with that. There's a way in which I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. So one way I agree with that is, I mean, they can both exist in the sense of we're free to use them or to not use them. Right. But the idea that like the ideal is just, well, we should have some mixture on the grid where we use, you know, as much wind as we can or as much solar as we can. One of the really important points that I touched on before, but it's worth really emphasizing is that what happens is politically there's policies that give them preference so it's whenever the wind's blowing whenever the sun is shining we have to use them and the more you put unpredictable erratic power on the grid something has to adjust as solar and wind go up and down up and down up and down through the day Mm -hmm. and when it's your base load electricity sources like coal or nuclear, these are very good at supplying reliable energy. They're not good at ramping up and down. And so what happens is you waste a lot of energy ramping them up and down in order to accommodate solar and wind. And so it makes the whole grid less efficient and less efficient, it means that it's more expensive for everything. And so this idea that, yeah, we should just push them all together. No, we should use the best at any given point in time. And then, you know, if people choose that wind and solar and for some uses and, and, you know, for a few percent here to help with peaking power, like there's cases where it can make sense, but it's important to really think through why are we doing it? And if we're doing it because it's trendy and we want to be able to put it on our marketing material so that people think that we're green, I don't think that's a very good justification. And unfortunately, I think that happens more often. often. Yeah, for sure. So Don, I know that you and your team at the Center for Industrial Progress, you guys describe yourselves as a for-profit think tank seeking to bring about a new industrial revolution. Part of your beliefs are human beings have the untapped potential to radically improve our own lives by using technology to improve the planet across a multitude of industries, things like mining and manufacturing, agriculture, to your point earlier, chemistry, engineering, and that this potential can lead to a much better quality of life for everybody. So I want to pivot here for a moment and ask, what's the measure of success, if you will? But it's also a different way of saying, where do you see the Center for Industrial Progress in three years from now and five years from now and 10 years from now? Are you still going to be around? And if you are, is that a good thing because people are listening and engaging? Or is that we got more work to do type of approach? Well, I mean, that basically stole my line, which is like, hey, I hope we're not around because that means we succeeded. And then, you know, Alex and I can go off and do other things. Right. But I mean, there's so much to clarify on these issues, you know, not just energy, but, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of different industrial issues and the framework that we're opposing and the positive framework we're trying to offer. The green framework, I think, is so entrenched and it's taken even by people who don't fully agree with it. They feel that it's practical not to say, like, I talk to a lot of people inside, you know, the energy industry and outside of it who will say, I get that, like, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but, you know, we don't want to be controversial. But what could be more controversial than people who are trying to 
rob us of energy. And I'm not saying everybody who calls themselves green is doing that, but certainly the leadership that's proposing things like so-called 100% renewable green new deal, the carbon tax bans on our ability to use energy, like that should be controversial. Instead, that's treated as ambitious and noble right. and idealistic. Right. And you can't challenge that by saying, yeah, I kind of agree, but you guys are just being impractical. You're being, you're doing it too fast. It's not going to work. Solar and wind aren't ready yet. Right. What you're basically doing is saying fossil fuels are a necessary evil and that the people who want to ban them are idealistic, but they have to have a longer timetable. Right. And in our view, that what needs to be challenged is the whole idea that is their core ideal and that if you care about human flourishing, the idea that fossil fuels are good, like this is a pretty non-controversial idea. Yeah. And the idea that we should ban our best form of energy I mean, nothing could be more controversial than that. Right. So, Don, I want to um, play devil's advocate with you a little bit, or maybe just put you on the spot to get your perspective. It'll help me, actually. Come with me to a backyard barbecue. And we're here in southeastern Pennsylvania. I'm really going to get nuanced here because many folks who live and work in the greater Philadelphia region are probably aware that there is a, a series of pipeline projects that are related to the opportunity to harness the natural gas that is being extracted from the Utica and Marcellus Shale formations out in central and western Pennsylvania. And how do we get some of that natural gas more effectively, more efficiently into southeastern Pennsylvania? There's a, an industrial complex in Delaware County called Marcus Hook Industrial Complex, and they're manipulating molecules of natural gas and then shipping them out for domestic and international use. But where I'm going with all this is there are folks who either don't fully understand that the pipelines, which have been there for decades, they just happen to move into a community where this pipeline was located. It's now being expanded, meaning it's going from, a, I'll make it up, an 8-inch pipeline to a 21-inch pipeline. And there's another one being put in next to it that uh, has additional capabilities. So you're at this barbecue and you're talking with a, a neighbor who you know expresses concern about this pipeline project that's going on in their community. What kind of advice, guidance, feedback do you provide someone in that situation? Well, the first thing is that in my case, like if I'm putting myself in the shoes of the person, I haven't studied that particular pipeline either. One of the points I always make is before you try to convince others, you should convince yourself and you have to have really high standards for how you convince yourself mm -hmm. that the hardest thing about persuading others is that most of us don't have high standards for how we persuaded ourselves. We believe things for kind of tribal reasons or emotional reasons or, you know, my party endorses this, so I'm going to endorse it. Or I'm generally think pipelines are good, so I'm going to endorse this pipeline without knowing maybe this particular pipeline's a bad idea. It doesn't right. make economic sense or maybe it's the company building it has a bad track record. So, but let's say that I've convinced myself and I'm interested in sharing that view with others. So one of the things we teach at the Center for Industrial Progress is what Alex called his constructive conversation system. And just to give you a flavor for, I think, how you can have those conversations in a way that will lead to a constructive conversation instead of a frustrating fight. One of the most important things is, first of all, expressing enthusiasm to have the conversation mm -hmm. that, yeah, I'd love to talk about that, including your concerns about it. Yeah. But then the most important part is get agreement in the framework before you start talking about facts. So if I were talking to you, I'd have two questions for you before we even started asking. I'd say, well, would you agree that our goal here is to maximize human flourishing? That is, we want 
all the people involved to be as well off as possible. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody will agree with that. Right. It's hard not to, right? Yeah. And then the second question I asked, which gets 100% agreement, is do you think that we have to look carefully at the positives and the negatives of this pipeline? We can't just look at the positives or we can't just look at the negatives. Mm -hmm. And that includes the positives and negatives of not building the pipeline. And everybody will say, yeah, well, of course, we we can't be biased. We have to carefully consider the alternatives. And then I'll share my understanding of the positives and negatives, including the facts that pipelines generally are the safest way of transporting gas or oil or anything else. Because, you know, the alternatives like putting it on a tankers and things, that's way more dangerous and way more expensive. And so that like a pipeline is something that is, you know, far safer than risks that we accept every day such as driving down the road, you know, let alone driving down the road next to, you know, a tanker carrying gas. And so it would be filling in the facts and telling. And what I would do is fill in those facts by telling the story of how I became convinced by looking at the positives and the negatives, the alternatives. And by telling the story of how I became convinced, rather than shouting them down and saying, this is why you should be convinced. Right. It respects their independence. It allows them to think about it. And and typically this goes on to be a good conversation. And then skipping a few steps, the final thing I'd say is that your goal should never be to convince somebody in a conversation. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is give them a reason to think that you're a thoughtful person who's capable then of giving a useful recommendation to an actual persuasive resource. And right. so, for example my conversations are typically going to be pretty short. And once I've established myself as somebody who can give a good recommendation, I'll say, like, here's a book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, that really changed my mind about a lot of things on the issue of energy, including pipelines. You know, can I send you a copy? Right. And I think that kind of getting agreement on the framework, telling your story rather than telling them what they should think, and then giving recommendations to things that you think are genuinely persuasive to a non-supporter, mm-hmm. you'll be surprised at how effective you can be and how much it doesn't have to turn into people at each other's throats. Even right. today, just assume that that has to happen. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I love how you approach that because it's really thoughtful. And, and and it's actually one of the, what I would call, foundational attributes of the Center for Industrial Progress, and that is a new approach to communication, how we are communicating with people about these sensitive topics that people, as you know, feel really strongly about, but may not have all the facts. So I like how you kind of framed it out and got agreement on what's the goal here. So folks, we're talking with Don Watkins. He's part of the Center for Industrial Progress. And Don, I would love to get your perspective on this kind of challenge, which I often ask in these situations, which is you and your team at the Center for Industrial Progress, you can change one thing when it comes to the energy sector or, yeah, I'll call it the energy sector. It could be its image, its brand. It could be its educational components. It could be helping people understand the value of it. It could be the regulatory process. It could be a financial model. Is there something that stands out for you that, you know, if we could just tweak this one thing, we'd be in a much better place in terms of the energy sector? Well, I mean, it goes back to my view that the one thing that if you change it, changes almost everything else automatically is changing our framework. And so one thing that then in practical terms, since we can't magically, you know, wave a wand and help that happen, how do people, including people in the industry, actually make that happen? And there's a concept that Alex teaches called arguing to 100, which is that in any realm, the best persuaders are always arguing that they are leading us towards an ideal and that the other side is, is leading us 
to the worst, the lowest evil, right? right. This, I'm for the highest good, they're for the lowest evil. Right. And whoever defines good and evil in, in a debate is going to win. And in the energy debate, it has been the green movement that has defined the ideal, where the highest ideal is, you know, some green new deal, 100% renewable, and the lowest evil is using more fossil fuels. Right. And so long as you allow that to be the, you know, 100, negative 100, the best you can do is argue their policies down to zero. You can say, oh, the Green New Deal, it's, it's too ambitious, it's too expensive. You can argue your side up to zero. You can say, we're not as bad as you think. But if you switch and say, like, I'm for a 100 of human flourishing and the lowest evil is human suffering, and you frame every debate in a pro-human way and then show how your policies will lead us to 100 and policies like the Green New Deal that are just about outlawing practical forms of energy would lead us to negative 100, that's the thing that allows you to really switch and help give people a better framework and push for better policies and not feel like you're constantly on the defensive. Because when people have a 100, their opponents feel overwhelmed, reactive, and feel like they have to compromise in the direction Mm -hmm. uh, of the other side. And so far, it's been the practical creators of energy who've been on the defensive and felt overwhelmed and had to compromise in the direction of their opponents. And I think that's a real tragedy, and it's something that can be changed. The benefits of fossil fuels, the surge of microgrid technologies, the emergence of renewable energy sources like solar and wind, and other stories about the energy industry are all available as part of our special Energy Focus series produced in partnership with our Greater Philadelphia Energy Action Team. They're available online and anywhere you get your podcasts. Head on to selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast. Now, as we wrap up, I want to let you know that the team at Carroll Engineering, they helped to make this episode of Growing Greater possible. With nearly 100 professionals and more than 45 years of experience, Carroll Engineering has earned their reputation as one of the largest consulting engineering firms in greater Philadelphia. With corporate headquarters in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, the Carroll team delivers a wide range of services that include water facilities engineering, planning and site design, landscape architecture, and so much more. Carroll Engineering is one of the preeminent partners in the civil and municipal engineering industry. Learn more at carrollengineering.com. That's carrollengineering.com. Growing Greater is presented by Select Greater Philadelphia, a council of our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Select is the business attraction organization for Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania, and helps to grow the economic vibrancy of our collective community by attracting new businesses and new jobs to our region. Special thanks to our program producers, Elena Carmazin and Maricela Juarez, along with the great team of marketing and creative services professionals at our chamber. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in anytime and anywhere you get your podcasts or online at selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast.